0: Lou Eisen, boxing writer and historian and podcaster. And today we're gonna to discuss a fight involving one of the most fascinating characters in all of boxing history. This fight occurred October 16th, 1909. So this fight occurred 113 years ago and it was the fight for the world heavyweight title between the then champion Jack Johnson, who's considered by many boxing historians to be the single most important figure in the sport in the 20th century and the incredible Stanley Ketchell, who lived a very short life, but accomplished more in it than most people do who live to 80 or 90. He, Ketchel was born in uh, Grand Rapids, Mich- Michigan to a Polish family. His real name was, um, he was born in 1886, uh, Stanislaus Keisel, Keisel, K-E-I-C-A-L. And he left home at 12, this is almost, inconceivable uh these days but he left home at 12. uh came from you know a family that didn't have any money they were broke so he moved moved to butte montana became a bell boy became very good at fighting and um or bellhop excuse me and soon became well known in butte as a tremendous fist fighter so he would travel around to different um uh places and he would fight quite often. And uh, he's had fights in Butte, Montana, and then he starts he he you know he starts his career uh, shortly after that. Um, as I said, born in 1886, unfortunately died in 1910. We'll get into that in a bit. But he started his career around 1902, 1903, 16, 17 years old. He was good with his fists. His trainer for a long time was a man Who's forgotten to history Johnny Loftus, and uh, of course he had the greatest nickname of all time, Stanley Ketchell, the Michigan Assassin, or the Michigan Wildcat. So uh, his pro debut was uh, 1903 May 2nd, he was 17. He knocked out a guy named Kid Tracy in one round in Butte, Montana, and he kept fighting and fighting and fighting, and uh, he he was a great fighter. Um, after fighting in Butte, Montana, and places all over the West and Southwest and Midwest, uh, someone had said to him, you know what? You ought to go to California. Because that is where boxing is happening now. And so he moved to California, and he started to fight different guys. And he—it it's interesting, because he's, he's known as the world middleweight champion, which he was. But he also claimed the world welterweight championship after beating joe thomas and then he claimed the middleweight championship after beating thomas again and then when he beat the sullivan brothers mike twin sullivan and jack twin Sullivan, the thing was there was no there was no um uh hey scrapbook how you doing and eddie eddie i'm glad you're here there was no recognized world championship there were no sanctioning bodies in. so it wasn't like he beat the recognized champion who who had a belt? Now you get the belt. That didn't happen back then. Also, there were differenti- differentiations. Excuse me, in weight classes, but the differentiations in weight classes weren't really observed. So you would have a middleweight fighting a heavyweight. Sam Langford, probably the greatest fighter to never win a world title. Langford fought from lightweight, where he beat Joe Gans, all you know, all the way up to heavyweight. Langford was only five six and a half. But he started out at 135 and ended up fighting close to 200. He was a strong, skilled man. And actually, he fought Stanley Ketchel. And uh, this is part and parcel of what we're talking about today. Ketchel Ketchel was uh, what Joe Frazier would call a scambuga, a rascal. So a lot of fights back then. Boxing was pretty well illegal in both states, but you could still have fights. You could pay off the right people. You could get a one-time license, pay off the police or the authorities. And a lot of times a fighter would say to another fighter, you know, if it was a great fighter like Langford, uh, him and Ketchel had a deal. We're going to fight six rounds in Philadelphia at the middleweight level, but we agree on a handshake and maybe even a written contract. We're not going to try to knock each other out. We're going to put on a good display of boxing. We're going to do our best, but I'm not going to try to hurt you. Ketchell had a lot of those deals. He never lived up, lived up to a single one. He was a real rogue. So when he gets into the ring with uh, Langford and they're fighting and he's hitting Lang, and they were very close friends, Langford and Ketchell. And a lot has been written about Jack Johnson, you know, and Ketchell not liking each other. You see this on the internet and Ketchell saying rude things. That wasn't true. Ketchell was not a bigot by any means. He truly liked Jack Johnson. They used to frequent whorehouses together. In fact, Jack Johnson and Sam Langford never called him Stanley. They called him Steve, which was his nickname. So Ketchel's fighting Langford. And for the first couple of rounds, it was supposed to go easy. But Ketchel's going all out and really hitting Langford. And after the second round, Joe Woodman says, you know what, Sam? He goes, yeah, I know what you're going to say. He's trying to knock my head off. And so Langford stages a furious rally and wins the decision. But it's a non-title fight. And then Langford says, or Ketchell shakes his hand and says, Sam, I'm going to give you a title shot in, in uh, six months in California. And of course, by then, unfortunately, Ketchell was dead. So we get to this fight. Jo- Jack Johnson was a superior world heavyweight champion. No one could beat him. Uh, Johnson's career um started in the late 1890s it really turned around uh i'm looking for the date of when he fought i think it was 1901 uh of when he fought uh joe Kowinski, the great jewish fighter the chrysanthemum joe yes february 25th 1901 and as i'm talking to you i'm going to remove all my baseball cards here so they won't get in the way i'll put them over here sorry for the interruption so he fights Kowinski and Johnson, you know, is still a novice in the fight game. In fact, when he started, he had to the, take part in these degrading spectacles called called battle royales where black fighters, 25 of them would blindfolded and they would punch each other. And whoever is la- the last person left standing would win like five bucks or two bucks or something or 25 bucks. And it was a degrading spectacle. A lot of times they made them fight naked. So. It Was just a horrible thing, but Johnson graduated from that into becoming a really good fighter. And other people tried to make his race a reason to get in his way, but he never allowed it. So he fights Jewish Joe Kowinski, who was 5'11, 5'10 and a half, you know, 172 pounds at the most. And Johnson is over 200 pounds at this point, 6'1, but he's not he's not really well skilled in the arts of boxing and fainting a man and slipping sliding shots and, and knowing how to move a man into position to knock him out so what Kowinsky does after the first couple rounds he realizes of course that johnson's just he's so big and his reach is so long that he said I, I can't fight him from a distance he'll kill me so what he does is he exaggerates his own defense he puts his hands up like this and johnson automatically leans forward with a left jab to his stomach, at which point, Kowinski shifts his right foot forward, hits Johnson right behind the ear with the left hook, knocks him cold. They both end up in jail in Galveston for like 30 days. And during all that time, Kowinski is teaching Johnson the ins and outs of boxing. And he basically said, a guy as big as you with your reach should never lose a fight. You know, you should never get hit. You should never be tagged on the chin you should keep the fight at the end of your jab you get people to rush you and then use their own momentum against them by knocking them out with your right hand which was what johnson did he became the greatest defensive heavyweight if not defensive fighter of all time and it was really almost impossible for a guy to hit him and so catch up you know at the time he's fighting he's fighting nondescript people but then he starts to move up then he starts he starts beating a bunch of guys, you know, that can, that can, um, uh, really fight. And I made a list of them here somewhere, if I can find them, but he's finding a bunch of different guys. He's beating the hell out of them. One of them was uh, later on Philadelphia, Jack O'Brien, who, who really hurt him and their fight was beating him. And then he turned it around. O'Brien was a light heavyweight. He'll weighed him by at least 15, 20 pounds. And, Ketchel knocks him down four times near the end, but because it's in Philadelphia, no decisions are allowed. And then Ketchell's angry, so they fight again, and Ketchel knocks him up cold in three rounds. So there's a lot to Stanley Ketchel. Uh, at, at the time that Johnson is fighting and, and doing well, he's beaten all the best heavyweights. He's beating Jim Jeffries' brother, Jack. Jim won't fight him. Jim was the heavyweight champ. He's, he's beating um, uh, Joe Jeanette, Sam Langford. Uh, Sam McVeigh, Fireman Jim Flynn, Sailor Burke. And uh, he's beating all these, you know, all these really good heavyweights. Uh, He fights Marvin Hart, who went on to become the champ. And it was, Marvin Hart was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And the referee, Alex Gorgains, was also a hardcore, virulent, anti-African-American bigot. um, By the newspaper accounts and everyone who was there, Johnson beat Hart up from pillar to post. Didn't knock him out, and I suspect he didn't knock him out because they had agreed that the fight would go as long as possible. And Johnson also, you know, when he fought, if he knocked a guy out that was a crowd favorite, it could turn into a riot. and would not be good for him health-wise. And when the fight was over, the referee gave it to Hart, whose face looked like raw hamburger meat. So this was obviously a biased decision. But Hart ends up beating... um, uh, Becoming the world champ, I think, by beating uh, uh, Jack Root. And then uh, Hart loses it to Tommy Burns in 1908. And Burns travels all around the world. He's Canadian, Hanover, Ontario, didn't want to fight Johnson. Burns' wife, Jewel, was actually black, and her brother was one of his sparring partners. He was going to fight Johnson. It's not that he, he didn't want to for a while, and then he said, I will for 30 grand. So it would be like today saying, "I'm you know, what's going on with Errol Spence and, and Terence Crawford? I'll fight you, but I want like seventy-five million or fifty million, and it's such an outrageous number, no one's going to pay it. And, and back then, thirty grand then was would be equivalent to six, seven hundred thousand today, and people thought, and Burns thought, well, no one's going to pay that. Who wants to pay that? And I should get that. And Burns was right; he should have he should get that because Johnson was the most dangerous fighter. At that time, he he was already the best heavyweight in the world for the last four years. So what happens is, Hugh D. McIntosh in Australia says, yeah, let's. I'll pay the money. Burns was surprised to have the fight. It's not really a fight. Uh, Johnson drops him, breaks his jaw with the first punch, five seconds into the fight. And then because of the racist things that uh, Burns has said to him, Johnson pounds him into jelly. And by the time they get to the 15th round, he just he knocks him down and then the re- police come in and they don't let the referee finish the count. But there was an original tape of the film, the great, late, great Steve Lott, who worked for Big Fights Incorporated, for Bill Caton and Jim Jacobs, and they had all the fight films in the world, uh, which they bought from mobsters, by the way. They, they, they said the original tape shows in the 15th round or 14th round, it shows Burns going down and referees counting and then the, re- and the police walking. They don't want to see, a, a referee count 10 over a white man and of course when you watch the film of it now from the film legend legendary champions or other clips that same clip it'll say well at this exact moment the police went up and shut off the cameras and i thought really really they climbed 30 feet in the air on a straight pole i mean these guys were lifted by ladders up into the phone the booth which was." 30, 40 feet above the, 50 feet above the ring. There's no way the police could have scaled that and stopped the cameras. The film of Burns getting knocked out was cut off. And that was the version that was shown. And then it was banned quickly because they didn't want to show a black man beating a white man because in the United States, this would be terrible. You have to remember Johnson was born in 1878. This was 13 years after the civil war. Its parents had been slaves. So sentiment still ran high and there was a lot of tremendous racism not just in the states but all over the world towards johnson Ketchell didn't share that racism Ketchell was not like that so Ketchell catchell's fighting and he's doing well in the middleweight division and he first claims the um welterweight title he knocks out mike twin in one round now i i say that but solvent was a really good, well-skilled fighter. And then, you know, and then about a month or so later, he knocks his brother out in 20 rounds and claims the middleweight championship. And as I said before, back then, there were no, I mean, Burns was the recognized champ and Joe Gans was a recognized lightweight champ, but still other people had claims. You would have to claim it and then beat the best guys around. And so what Ketchel does after he, he um, um, does this yes scrapbook uh yeah uh, steve lott died um last year at his home in las vegas i spoke to him quite often and uh he was an epileptic he was on his on a chair changing a light bulb he had an attack and fell down and injured his brain unfortunately he was a great guy very generous and helped me with my forthcoming book quite a bit um I love them. I mean, he was just a wonderful person. but um, getting back to to Ketchell. So Ketchell has a three fight series of Billy Papke. Now the interesting there's several interesting things about Billy Papke uh, and about the fight. So he beats Billy Papke in the first fight. Now, in all three fights, when you look at Papke, you think that he's fighting completely naked. He's actually wearing a thong similar to what a woman's underwear thong would look like. It's the most bizarre uh, thing you can see. So, Or one of them, anyways. So in the second fight, the rumor is this, is that they come out to shake hands at the beginning of the fight. And as Ketchel extends his right hand, Papke whacks him with the left hand and drops him. And Ketchel's out, but he gets up. He lasts 11 more rounds until Papke knocks him out in 12th round the only problem with that is there's no there's lots of newspaper reports for the fight no one ever mentions that in fact a lot of people boxing people who were there years after said that's news to me i was at the fight and i never saw it but that's what's come down through history i don't know one way or the other but he beat Ketchell. Papky was a tough guy and in the rematch he demanded an immediate rematch and Papke, or Ketchell just demolished him, punished him, demolished him, knocked him out. I think what happened before the second fight was the fact that when they're leaving their dressing rooms, you know, um, Papke called Ketchell an ignorant, dumb Polak and started making fun of Polish people and things like that, and making fun of Ketchell's parents. And Ketchell got so angry. He was like, I can't wait to kill him and races across the ring, forgetting how to do it methodically and got caught. That seems more likely to me would happen. The other thing with Ketchel is, um, um, yes, that's true, but Ketchel, Stanley was not going to fight him in their boat until his purse was threatened. But Ketchel uh, had a thing called the triple shift. They called it the left shift and the Ketchel shift. You know, it started really, I mean, it started hundreds of years ago, but it was really first well known with Bob Fitzsimmons, the solar plexus punch, where Fitzsimmons, who was an orthodox fighter, catcher was amidextrous, by the way. He could fight left handed or right handed, didn't matter to him. So, what he would do is you'd have a guy like like um, uh, Bob Fitzsimmons, and he'd be fighting, and he would just, you know, switch his stance, bring his punch into the solar plexus of James Corbett, and he knocked he knocked him out. And what Ketchel would do is Ketchell often would, he'd be moving back and forth. So he'd switch to his left, you know, like he was going to throw a left to the body or the head. The guy would put his hands up, then he'd switch here, and the guy would lean back like that, and then he'd throw it left. He was always changing his punches. He was equally adept at as, as a right-hander or as a southpaw. And he was always bobbing and weaving and moving. Ketchell was a very good fighter. He took out a lot of good guys. Papke was a good fighter, too. Now, at the time they fought in um, Ketchel and uh, Johnson fought, um, there really wasn't anyone else for Johnson to fight. Johnson had beaten everyone, and they were looking for someone to go beat him and, and, uh, and take him out. Because people, you know, they thought it would hurt. October 16th, 1909, Coleman, California. They thought it would hurt the gate because you have a black champion. Best fighters at that point in heavyweight division are all black, but they're not going to get a chance because they thought a black fighter fighting a black fighter doesn't draw any money. That's not true, but that's what they thought. That was their racist sentiment. So Ketchell stepped up and said, I'll fight him. And as I said, they used to go to horror houses together. They were friends. So all the stuff you hear about Ketchell saying all these bigoted racist things. It's just, it's it's just garbage. They were they were friends, but they were doing this for money. They had a deal. The fight would go 20 rounds. Ketchell made a deal with Johnson, we both get paid, and no one gets hurt. You retain your title. I look good for going 20 rounds, and then I get more in my next fights. And the problem was Johnson waited at 209. They they say catch a in at one seventy. He didn't. He weighed in at once. He entered the ring at one sixty. When he went to the weigh in, he had on a coat that was three sizes too big. Huge boots inside which they put all these metal. I'm not going to say studs, but metal rings. He had he had you know almost like barbells in his coat jacket, and um, so it added ten pounds to his weight. And they thought that would make it. You know he's a big guy it was just all his coat and all the metal they added into his coat and his shoes he was still 49 pounds less than jack johnson and yes skill skill beats power often speed beats power i think you is much more skilled than fury but we'll see what happens catcho was a good fighter people called him a face first brawler but he, he knew what he was doing he he wasn't technically sound. Jack Johnson was technically perfect. And they agreed to have this fight in Coma, California. And the fight's going along as planned. And Ketchel takes a couple lunges at Johnson, lands some punches in the second round. And just to let him know, you know, just to let, let Ketchel know Johnson's like, hits him with a straight right hand and knocks him down. And Ketchel's hurt. And the left side of his face is just, you no, know, his nose is broken, it's bleeding over his eye from his nose, from his mouth. It was Johnson's way of saying, hey, we, we have a deal. I'm not I'm I'm way bigger than you. I'm not gonna go out to hurt you. I'm happy just to jab you and win that way and land a couple shots on your arms. But if you're gonna make an effort to try to actually knock me out, I will destroy you. And Ketchow, you see him the whole fight. He's fainting, he's trying to get in, but Johnson's arms are extended and it's so hard to get inside his reach. And, you know, when you're watching a, um, a fight, for instance, the Jared Anderson fight last night, the guy that he beat, Forrest, I mean, he would have been better off being close to Anderson rather than giving Anderson all that distance, although he didn't have much of a choice. When you're fighting a guy with an extended reach, especially when it's much larger than yours, you want to get inside his reach, work to his body because he needs room and space to punch. And John, and Ketchum wanted to take that away from Johnson. He wasn't able to do it. Johnson was just so quick and just kept moving back. It would be ridiculous today for a middleweight to go up and fight a heavyweight, but it was quite common back then for middleweights to fight heavyweights. Jack Blackburn, who trained Joe Lewis as a lightweight, fought Sam Langford and Jack Johnson, you know, so except he was something like six, two and a half, 135 pounds. So weight didn't really factor into it that much, and it was more skill and back in that part of the century guys that were enormously big like primo or primo carnera later on but jess willard usually had very little skill and no chin and no balance so a shorter guy could easily beat them which is why dempsey destroyed him because he was a much better technically gifted and stronger fighter so Ketchell's doing his best to get inside johnson and he's you know he's doing everything he can to hit him on the arms hit him in the stomach and Johnson, when Ketchell gets a bit too rambunctious, Johnson grabs him. Ketchel's hitting his head up, and Johnson's smiling, waving to people and talking to people. Because Johnson knows there's no problem here. I got almost 50 pounds on the guy. The guy's a good fighter, but he's a middleweight, you know, and, and he can't take my power, and he can't get past my jab. I'm too quick. And all through the fight, you just see Ketchell's head going back and back and back. And Johnson just keeps whacking him with that ramrod jab over and over. And his left side of his face is completely red, just covered in blood. And Ketchell has, you know, he's trying to figure out what to do. But even when his hands are up, he can't stop the jab. It's just too strong. And he's taking a beating through the fight. And Johnson will hit him in the stomach and he'll hit him with uppercuts. And you know, there's times where he tagged him with uppercuts and sort of held on to Ketchup because he thought Ketchup may go down from that. But Johnson had to hold back. He had to hold back because he thought, you know, the fight of the film, if it's 20 rounds, it'll make more money. If I knock him out early, you know, no one's gonna to want to see me beating a white man, especially the world middleweight champion. So what happens is eighth round, ninth round, tenth, Johnson's won every round and Ketchell's is trying to make a fight of it he realizes this is my big chance so in the 12th round they're circling each other around the ring and Ketchell does his famous triple shift where he shifts to one side fakes a punch shifts to another side you know does another shift but when he shifted finally to his left he threw a right hand and it's hard to see exactly on the film i've watched it a million times He catches Johnson on the end of, on the top of his head. It looked to me like the punch went over his head and Johnson um, slipped while ducking the punch and went down. That's what looked like to me happened. But the people there said he landed on the back of his head and Johnson went down. And it was unmistakable, you know, Johnson's down. uh, He gets up and the look on his face, He's angry. This is, you know, uh, how many years ago? 113 or whatever years ago. But the man is extremely angry because in his mind, we had a deal. The deal was, you don't try to hurt me. I don't try to hurt you. Now you broke the deal. Now I don't have to honor my part. My part of it. So Johnson just says, "Forget it. Forget jabbing him and moving around." He walks right at Ketchel like a freight train hits him a right hand and knocks out shears off like eight or ten of his front teeth and Ketchell goes down spread eagle he's out and after the council he tries to get up he can't get up he's trying he can't and you see on the film if you watch this on youtube johnson's standing by the far ropes and he's wiping Ketchell's teeth off his mitts he sheared his teeth off and after when he was interviewed he said we had a deal You know, we were going to fight a 20-round fight for the world heavyweight title. We were going to give the fans a great show. We weren't going to try to injure or hurt each other, but he broke the deal. He tried to knock me out. That wasn't part of the deal. And that, you know, today, that would cause a big uproar, although nothing would happen in boxing because nothing ever happens to correct something like that. But back then, it was just accepted. You know, a lot of fights went that way. A lot of great fighters like Johnson, Benny Leonard, joe Gans george Dixon, even Ketchell. a lot of them had a tough time getting fights unless they agreed not to kill their opponent and carry them for a while especially black fighters had to take punishment and agree not to carry their not to hurt their opponent for eight or nine rounds at which point you know the manager would say okay now it's all right to go after him ketchel was just absolutely flat and he was out cold for quite a while um you know, later in his career, I just wanted to get the the timeline straight. Um, he He catch on one in the rematch. He kept campaigning for a rematch, but there there was no way because the knockout was decisive, and Johnson was so much bigger. And there was really no one else out who could fight him at that point. but James J. Jeffries came out of um, excuse me, James J. Jeffries came out of uh, retirement and fought Johnson and got annihilated in fifteen rounds. But after this, Ketcho fights Frank Klaus, who was a great uh, middleweight at the time. And Klaus, he didn't train for him seriously, and it was declared a newspaper draw. But uh, it, you know, Klaus came close to beating him, and then he fought Sam Langford. Now, the Langford fight with Ketcho is interesting because they were good friends, and Langford beats him. Uh, gets a newspaper decision even though Ketchell didn't agree didn't go along with their agreement and Ketchell says to him in six months i'll give you a shot at the world middleweight title now this was an extremely important point in boxing history because he was never given a shot at the heavyweight title sam langford and he this would have been a chance to win a middleweight title and Ketchel was honest with him you know they were good friends I'll give his shot and basically Joe Woodman Langford's manager and Ketchel's manager were talking they said yeah we'll do it in six months because their fight was in Philly we'll do it where we'll do it in California he'll get his shot and I think Langford Ketchel was a great fighter but I think Langford would have walked through him and uh, the fight was listed as an official no decision Uh, both men fought well but a lot of people thought, you know, Langford won the fight. So the sad thing about my uh, Ketchel, and, and this happened, there was more tragedy that happened to his family even after he died. Uh, he was working on his farm in Conway, Missouri, October fifteenth, 1910. And there was a couple there that they said were married. They weren't married. It was uh, Walter Dippley and Goldie Smith. They weren't married. They were grifters. They'd gone along to different farms and different people and grifted them, asked for hired help, and then ended up stealing money from their valuables. And what happened was they said Ketchell was eating breakfast. He made a sexual pass at the woman, and this guy, the husband, got angry and shot him through the window. That's entirely BS. Ketchell walked into the room and saw somehow... Goldie Smith had opened the safe full of Ketchell's money. Ketchell didn't trust banks. that was his money and he catches her and he says, "What are you doing? That's my money. I'd pay you guys every week. you don't get to just take my money and at that point, her partner who's standing outside the window shoots him and and uh, with a rifle and hits him in the back and the chest went through his lung he went down the police came ambulance came he lived long enough to tell them who it was and the bullet in his lung and ended up getting infected he died he was only 24 years old and when his manager wilson meisner or willis Britt, one of his two managers when i'm not sure which one i think it was willis Britt. Uh, They said, Stanley ketchell has been shot and critically injured. He said, start counting to 10. He'll get up and survive. And so Ketchell doesn't make it. They catch these people. The woman is acquitted, which is mind-boggling. The man is convicted of of, uh, murder. Walter Dippley goes to jail for 23 years. Should have been in jail for life. This was a complete setup. Steal his money and then kill him. That was completely planned. And you would think, how can that happen? It happens today. But how could it happen to someone like Stanley Ketchel? He was only 24. He lived a lot. And he would fought a lot. You know, he had a lot of fights. And I actually uh, wrote down the number of fights Ketchel had, which was which was um, quite a few. Yes, Ketchell had. 49 wins, 46 by knockout, which is incredible. Lost five and uh, drew three. So, and he stood five foot nine. So, it's, it's a, ama- he had an amazing life. He still, cons- Matt Fleischer in the 1960s still considered him the greatest middleweight of all time. He's certainly up there, but he was the first one to win the world middleweight title back after losing it. And then Al Hostak did it. And then the great Tony Zale, who in my mind may be the greatest middleweight champion ever to have lived, did that. Um, how would he do against a guy like Sugar Ray Robinson? We don't know. It doesn't matter. You have to. You only can look at him in the context of the era in which he fought. And so he left an estate of about one hundred and twenty-four thousand dollars, and for that time that was incredible. And. Well, what the sad thing was, he, he died 1910. Just over 17 years later, February 16th, 1928, uh, someone came to his father's farm. They wanted to talk to his father, and they couldn't find him. And his father, excuse me, Thomas Ketchum was 74, and he was found on the farm, I think, in the hayloft, and his throat had been slit. He'd almost been decapitated. And so the police were called and they searched around the farm and around the area. And who did they find? They found Ketchell's brother, John, his younger brother, John. And he admitted to murdering his father because he said the money Stanley left was for all of us. And he stipulated that in the will. And you spent it all on land and that wasn't right. You should have consulted me. And they got into a fight and he killed his own father so that was quite sad uh Jack Johnson always remembered Ketchell fondly um, Johnson died in 1946 in a car crash in the southern United States and uh Ketchel and Johnson were in the inaugural class of um the International Boxing Hall of Fame in Canastota, New York Ketchell had a lot of great fights he's a guy that's worth watching he's interesting because You look at him, he looks thin and scrawny, and you don't think he's going to accomplish much when you see him in the ring. But he was tough as nails, and he could punch. He could really, really punch. He had tremendous power. He mastered the art of leverage and balance. He was constantly bobbing and weaving back and forth, and he had a tremendous chin. Yes, Johnson knocked him out. Yes, Papke knocked him out, but he could fight doesn't matter to get knocked down it's what happens when you get it back up and he proves that he's one of the all-time great middleweight champions you'd have to include you know sugar ray robinson my guy marvin Hagler, uh, tony zale jake lamotta but also you know catch is up there you can't you can't disqualify catch you know and in that era the gloves are like three to five ounces um anything went in the ring, headbutting thumbing, healing, low blows. So he had to take all of that, not complain, still come forward and, you know, to make that claim, he came from where he came from, Abject poverty in Michigan to move as a 12-year-old hobo to Pute, Montana, work as a bellhop, get into boxing, and then at 16, move to California to pursue it full-time. I mean, the odds against him were astronomical. But he was tough and he was strong and he wouldn't turn down a fight with anyone so when you look at his ring record he's fighting one guy and then oh five weeks later this guy three weeks later this guy two and a half weeks this guy week and a half later the same guy and the thing is these weren't bombs; these were all guys that were starving just like him and they needed to win you know to move the career ahead and to get known in boxing to get a chance at the title and so after as i said before after he beats joe thomas Declares himself champion, but after he beats Sullivan, he declares himself, uh, um, Mikey declares himself welterweight, and then he beats his brother and declares himself middleweight champion. And he secured the claim by beating Billy Papke, who was probably the other best middleweight in the world at that time, not including Frank Klaus, who's George Chip, who are moving up. But by the time, you know, he's still the middleweight champion of the world, he's gone. He's murdered by these grifters and it's a sad story. I don't believe there's been a movie on him. I think there's been a couple of books on him, but if anyone deserved a movie, it would be Stanley Ketchel. Ketchel had a short, brutal, incredible life. 24 years of age, two time undisputed world middleweight champion. And it, it was undisputed because all the other middleweights said, yeah, he's the best no doubt about that he was the one everyone wanted to fight you had to go through him if you wanted to make money in the middle league division Jack Johnson you know has to rank as one of the top several prize fighters ever to have lived over the last 300 years great fighter greatest defensive fighter of all time you talk about the shoulder rolling Floyd Mayweather I mean Johnson perfected all those moves years before Mayweather's grandfather was even born so it's a tremendous fight you can see it on youtube i would suggest you research the great stanley Ketchell, because Ketchell was just one of those figures out of american history he belonged to the wild west and uh, you know an itinerant hobo like jack dempsey was went out to seek fame and fortune and actually got it through hard work it was only after he won the title he didn't train as hard and taking on some fights didn't think he needed to because he was fighting all the time but then realized later on that, yeah, I do need to be in shape for these guys. He thought his skill and his experience was enough. It's funny that a guy at 24 would think my experience is enough. But, you know, he had a lot of fights by that point. So you, you have to look at Ketchell, as I said, one of the top middleweight fighters of all time, uh, a great character out of boss, boxing history, the Michigan Assassin, someone that's well worth checking out. He had a lot of great fights. You can catch a lot of his fights on YouTube. He had an interesting halting style. He would take a step forward, take a step back, sort of go forward and then sort of lean back to see what you were going to do. He was trying to feint and suffer his opponents. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Back then guys would come rushing at you and Ketchell was always ready for that. He was a great fighter on the inside, too, great ripping uppercuts. And uh we all know Jack Johnson, you know, just a privilege and a joy to watch anytime. That is Ring Talk for today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll see you next time on Ring Talk. I'm Lou Eisen. Have a good day.